Hello, and welcome back to Political Debrief. I'm your host, Josh Oliverio. Today, I want to talk about partisanship and whether it's gotten worse, more extreme, or more personal. To talk about this, I am pleased to be joined by the Honorable Michael Chong, Member of Parliament for Wellington Halton Hills and a former Cabinet Minister under Stephen Harper's government. We also discuss the recent allegations and controversy surrounding reports that a former Chinese diplomat targeted MP Chong's family in an effort to intimidate him in his role as an MP. Hope you enjoy our conversation now. And Michael Chong joins me now. MP Chong, thanks so much for taking the time. Great to be here, Josh. So, first of all, um, I want to start off. I'm going to give you two minutes if you want to just give us a quick introduction uh, to yourself, a little bit of your political experience, um, and tell us something about Wellington Halton Hills. Well, my name's Michael Chong. I'm the Member of Parliament for Wellington Halton Hills, as you've mentioned. It's the south part of the county of Wellington and the north part of Halton Region. I've been a Member of Parliament uh, representing this constituency for the last uh, 19 years. And uh, I live in the constituency with my wife and our three children, uh, Carrie, uh, William, Alistair, and Cameron. Carrie's my wife, not my uh, children. Uh, And so, yeah, uh, I've been doing this uh, uh, on Parliament Hill. Um, Before I got elected, I worked in the private sector for a number of years. Um, And before that, I went to school. Uh, I originally went to high school in Fergus and went to the University of Toronto where I met my wife uh, many, many years ago. So that's a little bit about me. So one of the one of the areas that you've been really focused on on Parliament Hill is kind of democratic reform and, you know, fixing our democracy. Um, I'm curious, you know, we've seen a lot of young people that are very cynical about politics. Oh, those politicians, you know, that kind of thing. Why do you think that is? Well, I think we live in an era of where many things are instantaneous. Uh, You know, we live in an era of the internet and smartphones. We live in an era where people are, uh, have become used to getting instant results for many of the things that used to take a lot longer. Um, But that's not the case in politics. You know, when you look at, for example, movies, uh, it used to be that if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to wait for it to come out in a movie theater. And often you'd had to, had to wait uh, for quite a while before you had a chance to see it in the theater, because often the theaters were sold out. And then we went to uh, VHS tapes where you could rent them from Blockbuster. And then we went to, you know, instantaneous movies where you can watch them on demand, whether it's on Netflix or Amazon or, or Apple. Uh, But that's not the way a democracy works. Democracies are inefficient in how they make decisions. And by their very nature, they are inefficient. Um, Dictatorships are much more efficient. You know, one person makes all the decisions. When that decision is made by that one person, it's executed on in a very quick and loyal manner. Whereas in a democracy, you've got to get a consensus. You have to get people to agree in the majority to a certain course of action. And that takes time, uh, and that's not always instantaneous. And so I think part of the frustration that many people have today with politics is that things take a lot longer in a democracy to accomplish than they do in other forms of government. But that's the very beauty of a democracy. Uh, It puts a check and balance on centralized power. 
on the power of dictators uh, so that uh, we don't have one person making the decision uh, all the time. Do you think we have enough young people running for office and getting involved? Do you think young people should be running for office um, when they're younger? I think we need to get younger people more involved. Our democracy is only as strong as the participation in it. And I worry when we see voter turnout plummet below 50% in certain elections in Canada. You know, there are many municipal elections where voter turnout is, is less than a third of eligible voters. There are many provincial elections where voter turnout is roughly 50% or lower. Um, I worry about lower participation rates, whether it's in elections or in political parties, because I think it, it, that does weaken our democracy. What do you think are some barriers to people running for, we'll say, federal politics? We'll say, what are the barriers to people running to be, for uh, of people running to be an MP? Well, I think there's a number of barriers. You know, one barrier, I think, is that there's a lot of things competing for people's attentions now, attention nowadays. Um, you know, we live in an era of entertainment, mass entertainment. There's lots of competing um, things for people's attention. I think there are other barriers to be sure. I think increasingly um, it's difficult uh, to run for elected office unless you know how, um, what the rules are, unless you know uh, how the nomination process works, um, and unless you've been involved for a long time in a particular political party. Um, so I think those are just some of the barriers uh, to entering uh, public life. I think also many people perceive it as a, as a, uh, you know, a much more public job than it once was because of the instantaneous nature of mass communications and social media. And many people don't want to be, put themselves out there in that kind of way. So you you know, these are just some of the things that I think are barriers to greater participation in our politics. Do you think that the tone of debate in the House of Commons has something to do with that? Like the kind of more partisan, like almost like hatred that we see in the House? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I, I think there's always been partisan politics and hyper-partisan politics going back hundreds of years. In fact, if you just have to read about the sectarian nature of politics in Canada in the mid-19th century to realize that heated debate, that hyper-partisanship has been with us for a very long time. In fact, things got so partisan in Canada in the 19th century that Parliament was burned down by a partisan mob. Um, that was the parliament in Montreal. Our parliament, our capital used to be in the city of Montreal. It, there were beautiful uh, parliament buildings that were built there for the capital. And a partisan mob in the mid-19th century literally burned the building down because they were so angry at the other partisan uh, grouping in uh, the legislature. So I don't by this argument that we're more partisan than we once were. I think the big difference, Josh, is that today people now see in real time, in on video, um, on social media, what is going on um, day to day um, throughout the year in a way that they once didn't. You know, a century ago, 
the way people got their news was filtered. It was through newspapers, through print. It was often delayed by days, if not weeks. Uh, and it didn't have that kind of that kind of immediacy and that kind of uh, that kind of um, you know that kind of sense that it was going on in the here and now and needed your attention. And I think that is the big change between uh, how we view politics, partisanship in politics today compared to you know a century and a half ago. So as I mentioned in my intro, you um, some of your priorities over the last 19 years you've been an MP have been talking about democratic reform. One of those things is the Reform Act, uh, which was your private member's bill um, just, just, just less than a decade ago now. Um, do you want to tell us about the Reform Act? What were some of the goals? Um, what were some of the goals of the Reform Act? Yeah, it, it was yeah, the Reform Act was an attempt to move things in the right direction. It was a small step um, in the right direction to rebalancing power in Ottawa. Really, the Reform Act is about power. It's about how power is wielded and exercised in Parliament in Ottawa. And it was an attempt really to address what has been a long-standing problem in Canadian politics. And that's the concentration of power in party leaders, particularly in the party leader that is in power, the prime minister's office. And it was an attempt to take some of that power away from party leaders, including the prime minister, and put it back into individual members of parliament so that they could be uh, empowered to better represent their constituents, but also uh, to play a greater role in decision-making that takes place. Um, and so that was the goal of the Reform Act. Um, the way in which the Reform Act tried to do that was to give party caucuses the power to elect um, the caucus chair rather than having the caucus chair appointed by the party leader, um, take away the party leader's power to expel a member from caucus and instead give that to the entire caucus on a secret ballot vote. Um, and third, uh, give caucus the right uh, through a written rule to review and remove the party leader, including the prime minister, through a secret ballot vote. And finally, in the event that the party leader was removed or that they suddenly resigned or, or passed away or were otherwise incapacitated while in office, give the caucus the right to elect an interim leader on a secret ballot vote. Um, and so those are the four mechanisms by which the Reform Act proposed to rebalance the power between party leaders and members of parliament. And if I'm remembering correctly, the Reform Act has been used twice since it's been enacted, both times by the Conservative Party. Am I, am I right about that? Uh, in, it's been used, it's enact, been enacted in large part three times, actually. It was enacted um, after the 2015 election after the 2019 election and after the 2021 election. I think what you're referring to, Josh, is that the Conservative Party has used uh, the power to remove, review and remove the party leader. Um, it, it has used that power uh, once, and that was after the last election when the party caucus decided to review uh, the leadership of Mr. O'Toole. Um, but it used the power regarding the election of an interim leader uh, twice, 
uh, we elected MP Rana Ambrose as the interim leader back in 2015. And then we elected uh, Candace Bergen as interim leader um, earlier this year, or earlier last year, I should say. Um, so it's been a power that's been used uh, a number of times and uh, in different ways. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, back in 2019, when the SNC uh, Lavalin scandal was the top news, there was a little bit of, I don't know, confusion, but controversy around the way that if the Reform Act was followed by the Liberal Party, because the Prime Minister removed um, Ms. Wilson-Raybould and Ms. Philpott. But um, I remember there being some confusion about whether the Liberal Party enacted the Reform Act or whether any any of that happened. Do you, in hindsight, do you wish that there was a little bit more um, power in the Reform Act to kind of be very clear about these type of situations? Well, it's excellent research that they've done because you've pointed out something that went uh, unnoticed by some people, which was that the uh, the Liberal Caucus after the 2015 election. Uh, failed to abide by the Parliament of Canada Act, which the Reform Act had amended. They failed to uphold their obligations under the Act, and they failed to make a decision on the four powers uh, regarding the caucus and the party leader. Um, and so I think that was a real breakdown in the rule of law, uh, something that should not happen. You know, this th- these four rules that are now in the Parliament of Canada Act Um, are to be voted on at the first caucus meeting, whether they'll be put into force or not. Uh, And this is the very, one of the very first acts that an MP has to undertake after being given a mandate by their constituents. Um, And so, you know, I believe that MPs ought to follow the law, that they ought to uphold the fundamental principle of the rule of law, which means that we're all subject to the law, whether great and powerful or, or, um, or not. And so um, the fact that the law was not followed after the 2015 election, despite many members of parliament having participated in those debates only a mere months earlier, was was very disappointing. And I hope it never happens again. Um, I think if we're expecting all Canadians to uphold uh, the rule of law, to follow the laws that parliament and legislatures across the country adopt, then we have to set the example ourselves of following the law. Uh, we do not get a, an exemption from the law just because we're members of parliament. If you, let's pretend like you're, um, you're back, you're not an MP and it's, you know, you know what the political climate's like now and how it's, you know, talking about um, how things are kind of instant. Would you want to become an MP today? If you were running, if you were not an MP, you didn't have any experience in the public service, would you want to run for office today? Absolutely. Um, I look the the technological innovations that we've undergone in politics over the last you know ten fifteen years you know are are have changed the nature of the job, but they haven't changed what the job is all about, which is to represent a group of Canadians and to participate in what I think is one of the most important innovations in our society which is Parliament. Uh, you know, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, par- th- this democratic system of checks and balances on power is a remarkable invention. If you look at the roughly 192 countries around the world today, only about 
several dozen of them are true democracies where they have these democratic institutions that are made up of people elected by their their fellow citizens and where there are checks and balances of in power within those institutions and between the executive branch of government and it's a remarkable thing that we invented uh, many many uh, centuries ago that has evolved through these centuries and part of that evolution involves technology um, but the the very fundamental essence of what the job is all about has not changed, which is to balance power in between elections uh, so that power isn't concentrated in any one place. And from time to time, have these elections where uh, citizens get to decide who sits in these elected seats and who is going to administer uh, those checks and balances on power. So I, I strongly believe that you know, the job will continue to evolve as new technology, whether it's AI or, you know, other kinds of technology um, are being invented. The job will continue to evolve, but the essence of it will remain the same. And uh, I encourage anybody who's thinking about entering into politics to do it. Really quick, before we move on to the rapid fire round, I want to ask you one quick question uh, about foreign interference, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so, you were kind of um, thrown into the national spotlight about two months ago when some very serious allegations were reported by the Globe and Mail. How do how did this um, story impact the way that you were an MP? Did it change how you represented the people of Wellington, Halton Hills? Did you have to adapt any sort of the ways that you administered your daily role as an MP? Uh, no, it didn't, actually. I, I am firmly of the belief that we cannot be cowed or we cannot bow to the threats coming from authoritarian states, that we have to continue to adhere to the principles that our democracy and other uh, democracies are based on, which is a belief in freedom, a belief in uh, democracy, and a belief in the rule of law. Um, and so those are the principles that should guide us all in public life. Um, and so I didn't change anything about my, um, you know, the way I, I work in this role when that, when that story broke. Uh, what I will tell you is that I was profoundly disappointed uh, in the fact that, you know, my government, the government of Canada, knew about an individual that had been here for years, that this individual was collecting information about my family and the PRC, and failed to either inform me about it or to do anything about it. And to find that out from a newspaper rather than from my own government um, was profoundly disappointing and you know, redoubled my resolve uh, to do my role as Her Majesty's loyal opposition to hold this government accountable for its, uh, you know, for its failures to provide good government. All right, it is time for the rapid fire round. I'm going to ask you some questions that I definitely don't have time to ask in long detail, so we'll just we'll just go through them. Uh, first of all, hybrid parliament. You voted against it. Yes. You, I know you made a speech on it, but do you want to tell us why hybrid parliament is a bad thing? I think it's a bad thing for two reasons. First, it's making parliament less efficient. You know, it's parliament's already by design a slow decision making process in order to provide a check and balance on power. Um, this is making it even slower. 
um, votes take longer than they normally did. You know, 10, 11 minutes, 12 minutes, rather than the seven or eight they used to take because of the voting app. Um, committees often are canceled because of the technology limitations. And I could go on. Uh, the second reason, though, is probably the more important reason, which is that I think meeting people face to face in a debate in a chamber of 338 members of parliament is a majestic thing. It's where you truly encounter the other, where you truly try to understand where the other person is coming from. And I think you get a better understanding of different points of view, of different uh, people's different perspectives if you are meeting them face-to-face and having a live in-person debate. And so for those two reasons, I, I voted against uh, hybrid parliament. And I would note that we're the only major democracy to still have hybrid parliament. The U.S. did away with it. Uh, the U.K. has done away with it. Australia, uh, the, you know, the French Republic, uh, Germany, and so many other democracies do not no longer have hybrid parliament, and we are the only ones uh, to still keep it. And I think, you know, I, I don't think that's a good uh, good thing for us to do. You mentioned committees in your uh, response, so I'll use that as my segue to this question. Um, some people would say that we've had a lot more partisanship and uh, fighting at committees and a lot of filibustering. Do you think that's a problem? Do you agree that there's more partisanship and filibustering at committees? Well, I think one of the problems with not just committees, but the House as well, is that the powers of the whips, particularly for the party in power, are so immense that the government wins pretty much almost all the votes. Uh, If you look at parliaments like the United Kingdom Parliament, uh, the government loses a full third of the votes in a typical year. Thirty, About a third of all votes that are put to the floor of the House are lost by the government. And that's because their whips are much weaker, their party leaders are much weaker in trying to control individual MPs. Whereas here, because party leaders and their designates, the whips, have much more power to control MPs, we end up with a situation where the government almost never loses a vote. And so the only tool available in many circumstances to oppose government legislation, government motions, is to use the filibuster technique. And so I think that's in part the reason why filibusters have become a much bigger part of our parliamentary system as opposed to um, other systems like the U.S. and French republics or in the U.K. parliament where you know, the, the government doesn't have the same power to force through legislation. All right. My last question for you, Michael Chan, you can take a little bit more time on this if you want. Um, if you had to go back to when you were 14 or 15, what is one piece of advice you would give yourself? My one piece of advice would be that you know, things will happen in their good time and that, uh, that you know, as you begin as a young adult, uh, not to be too worried about your future, um, that you know, if you work hard and you do your best, that eventually everything will fall into place. You know, I think as uh, I think back to my teenage years and my early adulthood, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty about what I was going to do. Um, and I think too much so I worried about, um, 
you know, what I was going to do with my life and uh, where I was going to end up. And now that I'm 51 years old, I look back now and realize that uh, I was doing a lot of worrying about things that I had no control over um, and that eventually everything worked out as it often does. Um, so that would be the advice I would give to my 14-year-old self. All right, MP Chan, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Thanks for having me, Josh. And that's it for this episode of Political Debrief. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. As always, I would invite you to subscribe to Political Debrief on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform to get updates whenever we post a new episode. As well, follow me on Threads, the new social media app uh, by Instagram. I'm on there at the same handle as I am on Instagram at Josh underscore Oliverio. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to another episode coming out in a few weeks' time.